Hey, this is DeRay. Welcome to Positive the People. In this episode, it's me, Kaya, and DR talking about all the underreported news from the past week with regard to race, justice, and equity. And then I sit down with the award-winning author, Jonathan Eig, to talk about his newest book, King A Life. Here we go. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram at Diara Ballinger. I'm Kaya Henderson. You can find me on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. This is DeRay at DIY on Twitter. Lots going on. Lots going on if, as we kick off this hot summer. Um, we were going to start kind of and just get the ick out of the way and talk about the CNN town hall that happened with Mr. Trump. Um, I watched it in its entirety. Hmm. I don't know why. I don't know why. But once I was in it, I was yelling at the TV like I'd never heard this man speak before. And I think what was even I think what I was also surprised by was the after show and how the panels were getting the GOP folks on those panels outwitted and outdid the Democrats on those panels to such a way that I just was like, did we not have a meeting before the meeting? What is happening there's a sen- Wait, explain, I guess there's explain a the senator panels from south carolina and i'll find his explain name the panels explain the panels Ex- okay. i don't remember the panels yeah so like cnn had two sets of panels after um after after the town hall right so one panel i mean it, it's literally every political speaking head that works at cnn was on the panel from like um from anderson cooper to Van Jones, et cetera. So there's two panels. And on both panels, from my perspective, more so the Van Jones panel, they just got dominated by this uh, this Black senator that was representing the GOP. I don't know if he's a state, I don't know if he's in a state senator or what, I'll fi- I will find his name. Um, but I think what was so troubling to me is how on top of their talking points they were and how the Democratic representatives were kind of scrambling to find their answers. We just got to get it together. We're happy to host a meeting for y'all and to do a brainstorm session with y'all care of Pod Save the People. Just let us know how we can be helpful. But I think, you know, there's no need to go in and maybe we want to, but Trump said the same old things. He's still not saying that the, that the election was free and clear. He's still not saying whether or not he's going to exonerate the proud boys that were uh, convicted last week. And and the person that they chose, I know she's getting a lot of backlash uh, for her performance, but I mean, they sent her into the lion's den. They really did. So that's that's my hot take on that. I didn't watch it because, mm, I don't know, I'm sure I was busy doing something else. And I love the fact that we so rarely hear from your former president, but- I did see a ton of the backlash asking real questions around why CNN gave him this platform at this particular point, Um, especially given all of his derogatory comments about CNN and the liberal media. And so I, I don't, you know, again, I haven't thought about this too much, but why do you think CNN gave him this opportunity? What's in it for them? The Chris Lick said it, the guy who runs CNN was like, you know, we made news. He was like, it was, we made the conversation. And everybody was like, your job is to report on what happened. Right, and to not make it. Make sure people, 
Yeah, not make it, not to be the news. Mm-hmm. You know, I did watch it, and I will say that that reporter, Dr. I don't know, I, you know, she was, Trump is hard, but this is not like the last time where we didn't know. Like, you didn't know what Trump was, like, you know, it, it, there were some unknowns. This time, it's like, we, we did four years of this wildness. Like, you got to get somebody who really can manage him, and he just out, that reporter was like, she might as well not have been there, because he just was running circles around her. And it was scary to hear that audience like laugh and clap at the bigoted stuff. You're like, what is going on on CNN? Um, It was really wild to watch. Like it was, yeah, but you see what Chris, the guy who runs CNN was just straight up like we were here to, you know, we people watched it and we made news or like we made the news. Like that's really wild. I do think more people are in tune to like, he's sort of off. The question is, like, who's voting is obviously, the, is like, the big question. And like you said, DR, we are just playing two different games. Trump is playing a whole different game than the left is playing. Mm-hmm. And he is running circle, lied about everything. And, but he wants you to fact check him so he can just say it with a bigger chest. You know, like, that's the whole, that's the whole game. And I still think that AOC is probably one of the clearest communicators on the left. It's just clear. You ain't got to like her. You ain't got to believe it. Oh, some people think she's too far, da 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 but you can't say you don't understand what she's saying. She is just clear. And you're like, yes, we need more of that. Mm-hmm. And what's going on with Feinstein, by the way? You know, I'm all about retire when you want to retire. I'm all about, like, go out with... Like, I get it. But this is bigger than you. And you not coming to work is screwing up some of the game. And you've done it. It's not like this is your first 10 minutes. You have had a huge, long legacy. Sorry, that, that ain't got nothing to do with what we was talking about, but I'm putting it in there. But but I want to pick up on that because, this, I mean, we just had an amazing example of this with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who refused to retire and messed us all up on this Supreme Court. And now, Diane, just move out the way. What is what you, I mean, and, and again, we talked about this, I don't know, last week or two weeks ago, right? I get the feminist argument that if she was a man, we wouldn't be talking about this or whatever, whatever. This is not about feminism or anything else. This is about power, how you use it, how you use it for good, and how you get... I mean, I, I've said this before. Like, I think it, it is such an indicator of an unhealthy country when all of the folks running the country are old. Y'all, we got to do something. Come on, young people. I got more trust and belief in y'all than I do in these fogies. So come through, run, do the thing. Let us vote for you. Let's get some new blood in the place. And just so we're all on the radar about home homeboy to watch for... Byron, he's a congressman. Byron Donalds, Florida. Just look him up. Lord have mercy. Mm-mm-mm. Um. Well, and taking us. Wait, wait. And you said you said Donalds was he, he was wrong, but a good communicator. He's an excellent communicator for the GOP and had everybody. Okay. Uh, 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 uh. So he's he's definitely somebody that we need to have some visibility on. Um particularly as this campaign gets started and we need to win Florida. Oh, apparently he was, um, wait, did this say he's from, um, he's from Crown Heights. Now this man, no, he is, he was a member of the Tea Party DR. Mm -hmm. Not that is, (laughs) how is this black man a member of, the Tea Party. Him and what Enrique is going from on? the Proud Boys. You see, Enrique, Enrique is in the in the slammer now. So, so he, mm. he needs to take that a lesson. Wild. Oh, he's the black guy who ran for Speaker of the House against Kevin McCarthy. Mm. Oh, aye, aye, aye. 
But in more positive news, DR, what you got? I want to go where the people are. Hallie did her big one with this song. <laughs> Y'all, she did that. If you have not seen her American Idol performance of Under the Sea, y'all, you got to get it. She did it. She did it. Did that. We promise. It does not sound like that. It is really, really, (laughs) really beautiful. (laughs) It's also one of those things where I realized that you just need that injection of joy every now and then. And for whatever reason, that song, like, nostalgically just does that for me. And, and then hearing her beautiful, sweet self sing that song, I was like, oh, this is delightful. I feel like I might need to listen to this every morning. I love it. I love the memories that it brings. I love that a whole new generation of little girls and little boys um, and little people are going to have access to this. Um, can I just say one other thing that is slightly off topic, just because we talked about it last week, but y'all, speaking of she did that, that was, I think, the the call to action last week, right, DeRay? Um, we talked about Bridgerton and I finally watched Queen Charlotte and oh my soul, y'all. Mm, that it's was that, It's that show? Shonda did it? it? It's Shonda did it, honey. Six episodes of pure genius Pure entertainment, honey. I'm about to watch the whole six episodes all over again because they were that good. Yum, watch it. Okay. Anyway, other people are doing other crazy things on not the TV on the Instagram live. Ja Morant, what in the world, y'all? Did you see that this brother done got him a whole nother suspension for waving around a gun? Because the last suspension for waving around a gun, I guess, was not enough. But here he is on Instagram Live, in a car, singing a rap song, waving his gun around. Because that's how you enjoy your music, right? And his friends, I say friends in air quote, because how is it that I could get in trouble for something and you post on your Instagram live the same thing that I just got in trouble for. I mean, I'm the problem for sure, because I should not be waving a gun around. But what friends do I have that are posting this on the Instagram? What in the world? And I'm confused because I thought they started common sense school in the NBA. Like, it's um, where you learn about the common sense. You learn what to do with your money. You learn not to have an entourage of 100 people. Like, I thought... That was a school that folks like actually had to enroll in and graduate from. I guess not so anymore. Well, I'm a um, I'm a John Morant defender. Oh, uh, oh. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> do it's defend. In, do defend. It's legal. It's legal to have guns in the state that he's in. I also don't know um, what he's being suspended from because the season's over. So you know, I don't really know what that suspension means. From a but paycheck, because ain't your paycheck year round. <laughs> Yeah, big, big, big. <laughs> Come on, let me defend this way. Um, yeah, I mean, it's wild that he's waving the gun. You're like, John, what are you doing? He he gives me big board energy. He gives me like, I'm bored, which is no excuse no. when I see him. No, 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 no. It's not board energy because he also got into a gun altercation with, oh, with a the young boy. man who came to his house, the recruit. Like this, to me, I think this cat is signaling that there is a real problem and Somebody needs I, his mom and his daddy be on the sidelines all the time screaming and hollering. Like, you think we, there's a problem? I think it just we gives need me to like, surround out. We need to, the village needs to surround this young man before he wrecks himself, honey, because this You're, is. Okay. It, I don't know when I see him, I just see like a ton of money, 
out here just doing whatever, not even thinking about it. And I mean, it's still a problem. It is just so, I think the second one, I'm like, you couldn't have done that. Did you, are you trying to get suspended? It's just right. like, maybe you are trying to get put out of the league because you have to know after the first one. And then, remember, he went for rehab. He like yes, took a he break. Went to, he went to rehab <laughs> and said he for the first guy, wavy his bad decisions and blah, blah, blah. Yikes. He has a daughter too. You know, you're like, John, what are you doing? I want him to, I want him to win. I, I hope Me he too. like. And I just feel like in my, in my hot girl days, when I wanted to be wild and get in the club. You were and not waving guns, girl. Nothing Tell us about exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Me, it, with the gun in a situation, is not ideal, right? So I just feel like when you knucking and you bucking, you got some drinks going, you pop a bottles, the last thing anybody needs is a firearm. I'm with like, that. It's also, on. he is wealthy enough to have a bodyguard who has a gun, <laughs> so he doesn't need. Yes. You're like, John, come on, why you got that? I know, but I like him. I want him to win, so... I like John, him too. That's why I'm, I'm calling on the aunties and the uncles to swoop in there and get that young man. You see this, everybody? She did not call on the police to intervene. She I said, sure I want the aunties uh-huh. and the uncles to come in. Uh-huh. That was, you know, we, we modeling on the podcast for you. <laughs> Don't go anywhere. More Podcast the People's coming. clear about where Newsweek is headed editorially. Um, But this, the article, it's it's more of an op-ed. And it's about how the crisis at the border and immigration is really impacting Black people negatively. And this, the context of this is in Chicago. A lot of migrants have gone to Chicago. And it's also in lieu of of Title 42 expiring and uh, Biden not reinstating that. And to remind everybody, Title 42 is basically this policy that Trump put in place that if there's a kind of a, a health crisis happening, that you can stop people from crossing, you can kind of delay people's asylum seeking. So that has ended. And there has been an influx of people that you know, there's already a ton of people at the border that are just kind of waiting and sitting there. And now there's been a further influx of that. But what's fascinating and that is what it's what's happening in Chicago is that black people are enraged and saying build the wall saying that they don't want migrants asylum seekers in Chicago in their neighborhoods and that black and that latino people or migrants are basically draining resources that should go to black people now this is all very complicated and i think there's also, there's just like a history and context of the violence and tension going on in Chicago between Black people and Latino people, particularly Black folks and Mexican folks. Um, And we didn't cover this on the pod, but as I was digging around in 2020, um, during all of um, the George Floyd uprisings in Chicago, there were certain neighborhoods where Latino people were targeting Black people, essentially like trying to, in in their mind, preventing them from looting, but actually like finding them or going after them um, and being violent and doing awful things, right? So 
I think this is, this goes, this issue has gone, is going way, way, way back. But what we're seeing is that it is just, it's exploding, right? Um, so I don't know. I just wanted to bring it to the pot. I'm still trying to like actually process it and figure out really how to be thoughtful about what's happening. And I think this for me comes from a very personal place because there, there have been any number of circumstances where I'm with Black people and they don't realize I'm part Mexican. And so they have a lot of negative and biased things to say about Latino people or Mexican people. And it's also my experience with the Latino community that it, they're not always welcoming to me because I present as Black. So it's just an interesting thing and even more interesting as we go into this election. And it just seems like we're not aligned on like who the true enemy, so to speak, is. And instead, this culture of going after people who are actually similar, similarly situated as you um, and then not getting anybody anywhere. So, yeah, I mean, I don't even know if the, op- the op-ed is just like weird and biased and not helpful um, and actually pretty much is in- inciting the very thing that I'm talking about. Uh, but I wanted to bring it to the pod as perspective because this is something that's actually happening in real time. I also think part of the problem is that uh, not enough is coming out of the White House in terms of how to deal with this massive, massive, massive issue. The The latest thing was for them to send the National Guard to the border, which isn't helpful. Powell just covered a story on this young Black guy uh, who's part of the National Guard that actually drowned trying to save migrants. Because there's no, like, there's, it's just, no, like, nobody's in charge down there. It, it's just like, whatever. Um, so wanted to bring this to the pod just to talk it through and get y'all's perspective on it. Dr. this is one of those things, too, where I realize that I don't know as much. So I know a lot about the police and prisons and jails. I don't know. I'm not an expert on anything related to immigration. Like, I, you know, I know about ICE. That's as far mm-hmm. as I would mm-hmm. be like, I know because they're the police. And you're right that the storytelling around like Title 42, what should what should immigration look like? Because I what I've heard more of against my will is the stealing the jobs and did it like that message. The GOP has churned it, and I'm like, I know that's racist and bigot. I know that's not right, and I've heard it a ton. And you know, this is an aside to your piece because the new the Newsweek article is a mess. But when I looked at the author, I'm like. You know, one of the worst parts of what happened with DEI is that everybody became an expert. Anybody, mm. like, anybody who wakes up is now... Because she, she runs, like, a therapy DEI service. You're like, well, how are you the bigoted DEI therapist? How does that work? But it really did open this window where, like, every single person who just has a pulse is, like, suddenly an expert on DEI. You're like, well, I don't know if that was really what we were going for. And finally, to your point that... Uh, and I think we saw this so clearly under Trump is that there's a way to talk about immigration that really is code for only white people from certain countries. And there's a way to talk about immigration that is understanding of a global world. And I don't think the public language is there yet for people. Like, it's not there for people, even like me, to understand that really well. But I'll never forget when Trump blocked all those countries on Twitter and then it was still white people immigrating. And you're like, well, I thought we weren't letting people in. Why do people from Norway come in? You're like, what's yep. going on? You know? And Duray, to your point, guess, guess who is easily immigrating through? Russian immigrants who don't want to fight in the war in Ukraine, having Powell did a story on Vice with them. E- coming right on through. 
So the issue is that there, and, and, and to be clear, yes, it's Latinos at the border, but it's also Haitians. It's all, like, yes. it, it's brown and black yep. people. So, and the, the other thing that I'll say too, Drake, because it, it, it lends itself to police, is the governor basically has this thing called Operation Lone Star in place. So you can, you can arrest migrants for trespass. And so they have local police officers, local sheriffs now engaging in immigration work because they're arresting all these folks trespassing on people's land. Hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of people. We don't know where they're going, how they're being held, held, then how they get into the proper immigration process. It, it, it's, it's a mess that is involving all types of la- la- levels of law enforcement and that I think if we we did have a larger conversation of what was happening there, I think to your point, black folks, every every kind of folks would be like, we need this is actually an issue that we all need to care about. We all need to do something about because it looks a hell of a lot like like situations that have happened to us as a people. Um, I think it is important to recognize that this is not a black versus Latino thing, because as you mentioned, Diara, there are lots of Black people who are immigrating, who are at the border, not just Haitians, but many Africans are coming to the United States um, through the southern border. And I think, one, we all need a broader education about the immigration crisis, what is actually happening and what's not happening. Um, I do think that it is, you know, everything that I hear people say, both Democrats and Republicans, is all of this is because our immigration system is broken. and But I don't hear anybody saying, here's a way to fix it. And so my big question, just as John Q. Citizen, is what is the longer-term fix, right? We've got an immediate short-term crisis, but I actually don't know what the like right longer-term fix is that balances our history of being welcoming to immigrants. Immigrants built this country, and continue to build this country, and at the same time being cognizant of the impact of massive amounts of people coming into the U.S., um, what that the impact that that has on cities. I don't think, I mean, I was just talking to a friend who shared with me that some of our recreational facilities here in Washington are being turned into migrant centers. And people don't know what that me- like means for their neighborhoods, right? And and absent clear information, fear-mongering happens, NIMBY happens, all of these kinds of things happen. And so even in places that are trying to stand up and be sanctuary cities, it's not just about providing the resources, providing... I mean, we got housing issues in Washington, D.C. We got 10,000 homeless people, right? And now we've got an influx of new people. And people here are very concerned about the homeless situation, our our lack of ability to build affordable housing at the right rate. And they're rightly saying... We want to be hospitable and all, but we can't take care of our own people. And so what are we supposed to do about all of these new people? Those are real tensions for people. And so to the earlier comment about who's a good communicator, like we actually need people who have the right messaging about the broader approach to immigration that we need to be taking and the very local impacts that are happening. I mean, what is most scary to me about this is this is a real opportunity for the Republicans to siphon off an even larger portion of the Black population in voting, right? We, we are, we've we all been concerned about how many Black men have found the Republican messaging resonant and how they're voting. And I think that, you know, this immigration argument that 
you know, new people are siphoning off resources and taking jobs and and impacting long-term residents is one that could very easily um, resonate with the Black community and have people voting really differently than they probably should. So I think this is one to watch for sure. My news this week is um, peeking around the corner of what is about to happen in healthcare in our country. We talk a lot on the podcast about all of the problems with our healthcare system and how they disproportionately uh, impact leaders of color. Well, here comes a new one. Um, It seems that uh, multi-billion dollar corporations, big corporate giants, are buying up primary care practices um, in astounding numbers. And this will likely change the face of healthcare um, across America. Primary care doctors, as you know, are the folks that you see when you have a cold or a headache or your stomach hurts or for your annual physical. They are lower, generally the lowest paid doctors. They are the least glamorous, but they also see more people than any other doctors, right? They usually see somewhere around 30 patients a day. And those numbers are driving um, these big corporations uh, who see large paydays to snap up these primary care practices. In fact, um, CVS Health, which you know mostly from its pharmacies, but what you may not know is they also own Aetna, which is one of the larger insurance companies in the country, just paid $11 billion for Oak Street Health, which is a primary care chain in 21 states. Amazon bought um, One Medical, which is where I get my primary care from, for $4 billion dollars. And what this is what what this is allowing it's what this is enabling is um, a system where your insurance and your medical provider and your pharmacy, your medicine distributor, are all under one company. What that, from a a positive perspective, I guess. You have more coordinated care. It's easier to talk between these three systems. Um, and in some cases, it better serves underserved communities. Um, but the cons are, you know, a flashing billboard, higher prices, you know, the drive for profits over patient care, running healthcare like a business when it's not a business. Doctors talk about losing autonomy. They talk about having, you know, time limits around only being able to see a patient for seven minutes because corporate efficiency kicks in, right? And um, this level of these, the numbers of people that um, primary care doctors see bring big business, big profits to um, all of these folks who are looking to make more and more money. The other interesting twist in this is and one thing that, you know, I think we don't always understand how these things interact and overlap is that um, Medicare is being privatized. You've heard the commercials on your TV and your radio for Medicare Advantage. What's happening is Medicare beneficiaries can actually buy their health insurance um, on the market. And there is about there are about 30 million Medicare folks, more than half of the beneficiaries who are taking advantage of that. That results in a $400 billion spend from the feds. And these big companies are looking at that money. These big companies can access 
that Medicare Advantage money, again, at the insurance level, at the doctor's office level, and at the pharmacy level. And so, um, you know, it is, it, it, the real implications are things like longer hours for doctors, um, crazy billing schemes to increase the amount of the federal reimbursement, like over-diagnosing people so that you can get more money from the feds, um, recruiting patients with goodie bags and swag bags and stuff to come into your practice. So like, I mean, you, this is like a car wreck that you are watching that is about to happen. Um, and it screams antitrust, it screams, you know, monopoly collusion, whatever you want to call it. Um, Senator Elizabeth Warren is urging the FTC to look at these large deals closely for antitrust activity. Um, There are also state laws that prohibit what is called corporate medicine, where the company, the laws basically say that the company that employs doctors can't interfere with patient treatment. But that's not what's happening in these large conglomerates who are literally dictating medical procedures and medical protocols. So you know what it is, right? At the end of the day, these big companies are about profits over patient care. And um, since they are scooping up all of these um, primary care um, networks, it stands to reason that it is likely that our healthcare system will be compromised in yet another way. And so I brought this to the podcast because I feel like this is one of those things that nobody's paying attention to. It's happening quietly. And we're going to wake up and wonder why, you know, our healthcare system is even worse than it was before. You know what this made me think of, Kai, and you said all the big points is that I also think about what happens when these companies just decide to close or sell to an Elon Musk, right? Like what happens when, you know, it works, it's great. Twitter, great, changed our lives in so many ways. Mine for sure gets sold to Elon Musk on a Tuesday and then all of a sudden it's a whole different ball game. You know, he's letting Turkey shut down the, the opposition Twitter accounts before the election. So you think about what happens when one of these companies just decides like, oh, we actually want to, mail the government, everybody who has abortion medication. We want to publicize in a way that like is not in violation of HIPAA, but skirts the line or is in violation of HIPAA. You get a fine. Who cares? Like Elon Musk is a great example of like, who cares about the sanction? He's breaking a ton of agreements. You know, he's violating stuff every day, not paying the rent on buildings. And he's sort of like, what are you going to do? Fine me $20,000, right? And that's actually what scares me about this because this is not... You know, as much as I love Twitter, it is a tech platform and we will, you know, we'll figure it out. But all of a sudden, if your doctors all get fired one Wednesday because Joe Schmo just decides that that is a whole different ballgame or or if one day, you know, some new rule comes and they can only spend five minutes with people instead of the seven minutes is already short. Like the consequences of that seem just so intense. And it is such a good example of the danger of maximizing profits. And, you know, I've been in a lot of rooms recently where people talk about what dominant culture is without having done the reading. Um, But this is is actually a case study in dominant culture, like where uh, where there's urgency for efficiency's sake, not for community, like those sort of things are nailed here um, in a way that you're right, Kaya, people aren't, people don't talk about these things until it's too late. And it's also... I mean, I'm, I've been feeling this in the last few years too, that it just all seems so corporatized. Like 
trying to get appointment with your primary care doctor is like, you got to go through the portal. Then you got to make a phone call. Then they tell you it's going to be three to six months before you can see it. You know, there is no people touch point around it. Right. And so much so for me, because I had long haul COVID, I had to I had to basically get a con like a go to a doctor who I had to pay everything out of pocket. And I still pay every month for this doctor, but I can have a sinus infection and get her on the phone the same day and get a prescription and it'd be done with. And that's how it should be <laughs> for everybody that is paying into this healthcare system. So this is, yeah, it's, it's not good. And it's very scary. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. So my news, you know, some days you're like, wow, the world is sort of wild. And this is another one that, like, who was paying attention to this? I wouldn't have seen it if not for on Twitter. But in the great state of Louisiana, the House just passed a bill that will make um, some juvenile records public. And what is the sum, you might ask? The sum is that they're in three majority Black parishes. And what the bill would do is that it would make the juvenile criminal records public in Cato, East Baton Rouge, and Orleans, which are 50, 47, and 60% Black, respectively. Uh, And it would make their records public. And the way the racist lawmakers are framing this is that it would be a two-year pilot program. And this is in the interest of public safety and that it will increase accountability, they say, And remember that the juvenile court records would not only include convictions, but also accused crimes, which is, you know, wow. And it's like this idea that uh, I don't even know how they are. Like, I, you know, I just gave you the words they're using, but I don't really know what even the stretch argument is for how that increased public safety. But, um, But notably, it would not be Jefferson Parish, which is majority white. Now, there are a couple of things about this. One is that there is no way to pilot program making documents public. The moment you make everybody's records public, they are always public. It just is what it is. So, yeah, you pilot in the sense that, you know, if you are accused or convicted of a crime and are juvenile after those two years, it would not automatically be made public. But everybody who has a record today, their stuff would be public and there's no way to put the genie back in the bottle once you do that. That is just is what it is. The second thing is that there's really no public um, safety benefit to knowing juvenile arrest records. Like, what is, as a neighbor, what do you know differently when you're Google? Like, I, you know, what do you do to the, or how do you treat the 14-year-old different who was accused of a crime? Like, what, did I, what does that even mean? I think that I spend my professional life preparing for things to happen in the criminal justice system, pushing back on things. And then some things happen that are just so wild, they confuse me. I'm like, this wasn't even something I, this wasn't what I anticipated, not on the radar. The idea that now we have to fight juvenile crime records being public just seems wild in a way that I wanted to bring to the pod. DeRay, it looks like last year in Louisiana, 
Children as young as 10 with the history of assault were transferred to Angola, a former death row facility, to sleep with windowless cells with floor-to-floor ceiling metal bars that locked them in. The conditions are more punitive than those at the state's high-security juvenile facilities where kids normally slept in dorms. So I think, one, the fact that this is a state that that put babies in Angola is a problem. And then what's also striking to me is we can't get the records of police doing all kinds of crazy who knows what. Oh, you better say it, girl. But Mm. these babies... We get to Come see on. we get to see their records. This, this is wild. This is wild. The woman who introduced it is uh it's behind a paywall, so I can't see, but she's a she's a Repu- white Republican woman. And there are sixty-four parishes in Louisiana, and we are only talking about releasing these in three. Um I what I what was most like first of all, you know, these folks are, they are empowered and they say what they want to say. And we, they, we've allowed them to gerrymander these places so that they have majorities in state houses and they could pass all of the crazy rules that they want to. We're seeing this all over the place. So on the one hand, not surprised at how overtly racist this is. I think the question that this raised for me is, okay, what happens next, right? Crazy legislature, crazy legislators, suggest bills that are, you know, all kinds of crazy all the time. What happens next? Who's who's voting? Um, how? What's the likelihood of this getting passed? Where's the ACLU? Can they sue for a restraining order? Like, what are the, the mechanisms that we have in place to stop these shenanigans? Because this is just, like, this is so beyond the pale. I don't even want to talk about, like, oh, my God, they're so crazy. Nope. What are we going to do? Let's talk action. How are we going to stop this from happening? How are we going to, you know, show the disparate impact? How are we going to, you know, get a, I don't know, restraining order? What you talking about, lawyer lady? What 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 options do we have to stop this thing from happening if it does get passed? First of all, how do we not pass it? And then second of all, how do, if it does get passed, um, how, what, recourse do we have to stop this thing from happening? I think number one, keeping these things on the radar is, is crucial because I feel like places in Louisiana that don't get a lot of national spotlight, the fact that they can, can put 10 year olds in that type of situation, which is clearly unconstitutional. It's like, you cannot do, you cannot do that. And thanks to Brian Stevenson, that is like, on the books, right? So I think part of it is like visibility when things like this are happening. But also, yes, I mean, the ACLU is going to be critical. And there's another organization there too that I think is protecting children's rights that is also going to be critical. And and that's typically what happens, right? There's a whole nother um, kind of arm of the movement that just focuses on juveniles, whether that's Juvenile Law Center in Philadelphia, et cetera. So I think part of it is I mean, it also almost takes me back to to the conversation around immigration. I just feel like so many of our movements are stratified and not on purpose, but more so it's just kind of how, whether it's to streamline, whether that that's how it happened organically. But I think part of the movement, even when we talk about Rikers, like there are young people there, like how can we just be more expansive around how we're talking about abolition? Like what does that look like? And how can we make sure that we're... <laughs> I mean, I think the the assumption is we are talking about ten year olds, but but I don't think um, 
I don't think in terms of, of, of action necessarily we are all together. One of the other things that I was just thinking about around this issue is we also have Repub- we have um, zealous prosecutors who overcharge young people, right? And, uh, and you know, I know about this much about this stuff. This is your world, DeRay, and your world, Diara. But, you know, what if there is a kid who who was overly prosecuted and because this is not just about convictions, this is about accusations, you know, the prosecutor throws the book at the kid and now that stuff becomes public and that stuff attaches to kids when none of it may be true. How do, like, this is so bananas. It is. And New Orleans and Louisiana, I think, is is an interesting case study. They have some of the highest numbers of pretrial detention still to this day. And so I think part of it is just there's so many broken parts of the system. Um, And then on top of that, I mean, you know, not only how New Orleans has been impacted post-Katrina, but even the decades and decades and decades before that. So I think it's just such a it's a it's 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 not necessarily a complicated issue. We know why the system is what it is. But I think, Kaya, to your point around who are the people, who are the organizations the entities that come together to help to solve it. I think that's where the work needs to happen. It is just such a, you know, I think about these things as the like, it's hard to unring the bell. It's like you open the floodgates on these things uh, and it just becomes really hard. And it's like, I hope that this is the stuff that radicalizes people. When people are like, I don't do politics. It's like, y'all, this is coming and it is wild. And like you said, Kaya, they are emboldened. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I think AOC, I, I've been on an AOC kick recently, but AOC had said something like, you know, we will win a street fight. Like when we fight, we win, right? Like when we, when we come out, like the, the numbers are on our side from a people perspective, we are right about the issues. The hard part is that our side doesn't realize it's a street fight often until too hey. late. And we are uh-huh. up here, you know, we out here sitting in the house being like, what they doing outside? Uh-huh. <laughs> Meanwhile, they done repaved the roads. They done took down the schools, you know, and then you come outside like, oh, snap. And it's like, well, they done, they got you. You know uh-huh. what I mean? This week, we welcome award-winning author Jonathan Eig to talk about his newest book, King of Life. The biggest question diving into this book is, what possibly can we know new about Dr. King? And here's the thing. Not only did I learn more things about Dr. King than I knew before, but I also was able to work through some myths. We talk about the pressures that came with 24-hour surveillance, the I Have a Dream speech, and some more ideas about King's radical racial politic. I learned a lot. You will too. Here we go. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Happy to talk to you, Dre. Okay, so let's start with... Have you always cared about civil rights history <laughs> stuff? Did you like stumble on a story one day and you're like, okay, I want to tell these stories that haven't been told. Was it like a teacher that pushed you? Like, how'd you get to this work? Oh man, that's a great question. I got to go way back to childhood and think about that. Um, you know, I, I, I was born in 64. So by the time I get to school, um, King is already is already dead, but you know, we've got busing. My schools are integrated. I go, I, I grew up in the suburbs of New York. Um, so I think, um, and by the time I go to college, um, you know, in, in the eighties, um, 
these discussions are everywhere, right? Like we're living in the aftermath of the civil rights movement. So I just think that it was, it was, it was in the air in the seventies and, you know, you, you couldn't really grow up in the seventies without noticing that, that something was going on. And it wasn't as clear cut maybe as it was for kids growing up in the sixties when you could see King marching and you could see that on TV every night. Um, and I just, Went to college and, and found a professor who I became a mentor to me, Leon Forrest, uh, in the African American. He was the uh, head of the African American Studies Department. So it just—I don't know that there's any one answer to that, but it it, it happened gradually. And I became a newspaper reporter and traveled to New Orleans. Uh, my first job out of college, and um, you know, a city that was predominantly black and. Uh, 10% of the city was living in public housing. And uh, the, there's just so many great stories to write about there. And I've just you know, basically followed what I was curious about pretty much my whole career. And how did you, how did you get to King as a subject of your writing? I, we all got to King a certain way because, you know, you cannot live in America without dealing with Dr. King at some point around civil rights. But, but, but you could have written about a host of things. How did you settle on Dr. King as a site of scholarly exploration? Well, that's easy. Uh, I was interviewing people for my Muhammad Ali book, and I realized mm. these were people who knew Martin Luther King Jr. really well. And just out of curiosity, I would say to them at the end of the interview, so what was Martin Luther King like? You know, Dick Gregory, Harry Belafonte, Andrew Young, Jesse Jackson. I'm sitting in their houses or in their offices, and I just I couldn't resist the opportunity to say, what was, what was Martin Luther King like? Because I grew up with him as a, as a holiday and as a monument, and to think of him as a real guy who took his shoes off and sat on the, on the couch and listened to records, uh, who, who smoked cigarettes in the airport, you know, hanging out, killing time between flights, uh, that was just fascinating to me. And once I started doing that, I realized that time was running out, that, that a lot of these people who knew him really well weren't going to be around much longer. And I wanted to interview as many of them as I could. And then I decided to try to write a book about him because it hadn't, there hadn't been a King biography in a really long time. Now, let me start with the question that's on everybody's mind, which is, what possibly could we learn new about Dr. King, given that we've all done book reports, Dr. King Day, everybody got an MLK Boulevard. Like, what, <laughs> when you went into this, like, how would you answer, you know, because I know people are going to listen and be like, okay, we're talking about Dr. King again. What could we possibly know that's new? Everything. My God, we've we've treated him so badly in history. Oh. You know, I I don't think that I ever read any of his work in school and when I was in school, um, even in college, I wasn't assigned to read his books. And my kids in public school here in Chicago, uh, in high school, they read um, Letter from Birmingham Jail, but that's it. So they know that, and they know I have a dream. And and King was so much more radical than we've been led to believe. He was so much more brave, and he was so horribly victimized by our own government in ways that we don't really begin to appreciate. So my number one job here was to humanize him, to show a much more intimate portrait so that you could see how he struggled, how he suffered, how hard this was on him, and how much he sacrificed, um, but also to see that he's much more radical than we give him credit for. You know, we tend to create this dichotomy that there's King in one corner and Malcolm in the other, and that one of them was conservative and one of them was radical. But I say no. I say King was just as radical as any of our of our protest leaders, maybe more than most. You know, one of the uh, one of the lines in here from Baldwin about King that I had never heard, and I was like, "Whew, 
Who knew there could be something fresh about Dr. King? I'm like, he did it. Jonathan did it. Uh, when, when Baldwin says he was more fearful than uh, than people think he was. Yeah. What did that mean to you to include? Like, how do you think about that as like an arc in King's story? Well, King woke up every day aware that he could be killed because this was not speculation. His house had been bombed. His house had been shot at. He'd been stabbed in the chest. On top of that, he knew that J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI, was trying to get we're trying to get um, newspapers to publish stories about his uh, about his scandals, about uh, his 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 love life, about his ties to communists. Every morning, he woke up wondering if that was going to be the day that a newspaper published this story that was going to destroy his reputation. So he lived with a lot of fear. He lived with a lot of anxiety. He was hospitalized numerous times for exhaustion, is what they called it. But even Coretta referred to it as depression. So this was a guy who had to had not only had to put up with that, but but then had to somehow find the courage to to go forward every day to keep marching and to go more and more boldly you know when he could have scaled back when he could have responded to that intimidation by by cutting back on his activities he did the opposite he he took on bigger and bigger issues you know segregation not enough i'm going to go after northern racism too i'm going to go after northern segregation i'm going to go after you know uh militarization of our of our society he 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 followed his true beliefs in spite of all of that fear When you think about um, the op-ed that you wrote about Hoover and Johnson, like making this point that it was, I think you were, tell me if I got it right, that that like we overfixate on Hoover and don't realize there was like an entire apparatus, a lot more people than Hoover who were undermining King. That is what I'm taking away from that. Yes? Yeah, 100%. We should focus on Hoover. Uh, we should take his name off of the FBI headquarters for starters. He was a, a man uh, who absolutely misused his power and used it um in racist, uh, you know, uh, un-American ways, but he was not alone. He had an entire FBI apparatus surrounding him. He had the support of members of Congress who knew exactly what he was doing. He had presidents and attorney generals signing off on what he was doing. And I would argue LBJ in particular was, was complicit because LBJ was aware of every single move that, that Hoover was making and was encouraging much of it. One of the quotes, the quote that you include in the um, New York Times op-ed really struck me. Uh, Let's face it, King said on a phone call to Mr. Levison days before his assassination, we do have a great public relations setback where my image and leadership are concerned. He added, it will put many Negroes in the position of saying, well, Martin Luther King is at the end of his rope. Um, Tragically, we know exactly how King felt because the FBI recorded his call. What was that conversation about? Stan Levison, one of King's best friends and closest advisors, was telling him to that he thought the speech at Riverside Church in opposition to the Vietnam War was a mistake. And he said, it didn't sound like you, and it's going to cost us support in the North. Um, it doesn't really fit your brand, essentially, is what he was saying. And King is saying, haven't you been paying attention to me all these years? Haven't you heard what I've been saying? This was never limited to buses in the South or voting rights. This was never limited to race even. This was about fulfilling the words of the, of the Bible. This is about the teachings of Jesus Christ. This is about standing up for what I believe in. I can't call out police brutality if I don't call out other kinds of violence too. And our government is the greatest perpetrator of violence in, on the earth right now. So if I'm not going to call out that stuff, I'm a hypocrite. That's basically what King was saying. And 
Levison was also warning him that he was going to destroy any chance of cooperation from President Johnson at that point, because King was attacking this war in Vietnam. And King was saying, I don't care. I've got to do what I believe is right. You know, there's a part of the book that um, that reminds me of a conversation I had with King's barber in Montgomery. Random. He was like in Baltimore. They, it was like the heart of the protest. They're like, Duray, can you come be in conversation with King's barber in Montgomery? <laughs> I know the barber. And, uh, uh, see? I, I, and I interviewed him and he's, he's fantastic. And what he says Nelson is Malden. he was like, he was like, I, he was like, I will never forget seeing him the first time because it was this guy who just like, he just had it. He was like, I remember we were all packed in the church and we like listened and I just had never heard that before. He was like, I was there when, when Dr. King became Dr. King. And I think about um, page 145 of, of your book going into 146, where you say the crowd thundered its approval. I was in the street. I couldn't get close to the church, said Willa Dean Malden, who was 14 years old at the time. You could hear the voice of Martin Luther King all over the neighborhood. I'd never heard of Martin Luther King. It was just a shocking experience to hear someone relate to the people like that and hear the reaction. The words just made so much sense. You didn't know why, but you felt something different. On this night, King found a new voice. He discovered or sensed that his purpose was not to instruct or educate. His purpose was to prophesize. I like hadn't thought about it like that. Yeah, when you think about why King, why is he the one who becomes the the nationwide leader of this movement of this call for justice? Um, and by the way, that quote was from uh, Willa Dean Malden, who's the barber's wife. Um, look at that! And, See, yeah. look at God. That's you great. It, man. You you uh, you you threaded that beautifully. Um, but what I was going to say is that King had a special gift that fit perfectly for this moment. He was not only a great speaker, he was using his voice to tie together this call for justice with the themes in the Bible, with the themes in the Constitution. So, of course, it made perfect sense. And it made sense to white people in the North, too. Maybe not yet to white people in the South, or not too many of them. But it was a voice that sounded good, that made sense, and it called on values we can almost all agree on. Democracy, religion. It was very hard to dismiss a guy like that, no matter how much racism you've got, you know, flowing through your bloodstream. I love that. I was like, I was like, here we go. Now, why did you, you at the beginning of the book, you include a lot about uh, senior uh, King's dad, senior King. I don't know what am I supposed to call him, Daddy King, King senior, Daddy King. Uh, why was he a central character in this story to you? I think Daddy King is a is a great American hero. He's born into sharecropping. He's, he's the son of uh, someone who was born into slavery. And his father has been wrecked by, by the racism of the South in Stockbridge, Georgia, 20 miles outside of Atlanta. His father is an alcoholic who's abusive. But Daddy King leaves the farm at the age of 12, moves to Atlanta, gets a job working at the railroads, eventually teaches himself to read and write, becomes a preacher, marries into another preacher's family, and sets the groundwork for Martin Luther King to be Martin Luther King. Um, Daddy King is fighting for the same things, the best tools he's got at his disposal, but he's preparing to grow, to raise you know, Martin Luther King, along with, with his wife, Alberta, who's also a formidable figure. But uh, Daddy King's story, to, 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 to make that big a leap from the absolute poorest conditions you can come up in, some of the most racist, discriminatory conditions you can come up with, and to raise a Nobel Peace Prize winner 
Uh, I just think you know we should be we should be writing operas about Daddy King. He's an incredible figure. And I love. Um, I hadn't heard. I hadn't read sort of quotes from Alberta before until um, until this book. Can you talk to us about the inclusion of D- the Dealey Cooksey story and like why this was another story that I hadn't. This wasn't a name that I had known anything about before I read your book. Um, again, this gets back to King and his voice and how it resonated with people. Um, Dealey Cooksey was a maid working in Montgomery, just one of the hundreds, thousands of people who were walking to work every day, refusing to ride the bus. And luckily for us, there were some sociologists from Fisk University who went down there and just interviewed everybody in sight, interviewed white bus drivers, interviewed the police, white police officers, interviewed the black people who were walking to work every day. And they interviewed Dealey Cooksey. And she described a confrontation with her white employer, risking her job. This white employer said, why don't you just get back on the bus, Dealey? You know, why don't you, you know, don't you realize that this young preacher, this Martin Luther King is is leading you people into trouble? And Dealey Cooksey just exploded at her white employer and said, don't you talk about Dr. King. God sent Dr. King. Don't you ever talk about him that way. Almost as if, you know, her own, you know, mother or her own father had been offended. And I think it just shows the impact that he had. You know, the, the, the people of Montgomery were united. They were, they were willing to sacrifice so much to stand up to the to the city in refusing to ride those buses. But I'm not sure that they would have had that same sense of purpose if they hadn't heard the voice of Martin Luther King Jr. Now, I'm going to skip to today and then and then come back. Is you know, given that you studied this style of leadership in this moment so much, what are the what do we take away from it in the fight today, given that the you know technology has changed the way that People come, you know, we're not in the, we don't need to be in the basements of the church to hear the oratory anymore. We don't have to stand in the street to get the message or pass out pamphlets because we have Twitter and Facebook. Like, what are the lessons from this moment that, that we should be thinking about or the leadership lessons of Dr. King that we missed when we talk about him in the, in the public conversation? Wow. You know, it's, it's certainly harder today. And I think the fact that we don't get together on the streets, that we don't, um, come together even in church every Sunday. You know, when Dr. King um, emerged as a, as a national force, um, two-thirds of all Americans belonged to uh, a religious organization, and wow. half of all Americans were in church on any given Sunday. So you had a collective body of people who, if you could reach them, if you could move them, they heard you, they followed, and they were united by this sense of community. And that's gone today. You know, we're, if we're, if we're, if we're acting at all, we tend to be doing it over Twitter and Instagram. And it's hard to rally a sense of community. You know, we felt it for a little while in the aftermath of the George Floyd murder, you know, here in Chicago. Um, we were out in the streets together and there was a feeling that, that we could keep it going, that we could really, um, come together. And it's it, it's just harder. I don't know. Um, it, maybe if we found somebody who spoke to us and united us and united black and white and north and south in the way King did, if anybody could have that kind of impact again today, uh, maybe that maybe it, we could still see that kind of response. I just I think it's gotten a lot harder though. You know, and I got to Alabama Moses, uh, which is a chapter in the book, Alabama's Moses, sorry. I, I wanted to ask you, how did you, what was your understanding of how he processed um, 
I don't even know if fame is the right word because it feels that feels like insufficient to describe the gravity of it all. But like the weight of that visibility, how do you do we have an indication or a good indication of of what that how he how that sat with him? Was that the cause of the depression? Was it like, I don't know, like I, I'm interested in that. That's interesting. You know, he writes to some of his college professors in those early years that people are expecting too much of me. Um, you know, he's 26 years old when he uh, becomes the national leader of this movement. And um, he's, you know, he's, he's flying by the seat of his pants. He's making it up as he goes along. So Montgomery worked. What are we going to do now? Um, well, let's form this national religious organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Let's, let's try leading a protest in Albany, Georgia. Um, but it's, there's no plan. There's no strategy. There's not much funding behind it. And I think he's nervous. I think he's full of anxiety. Like people are counting on me and I don't know what to do. And what he does is he throws himself into chaotic situations. He takes chances. He's willing to put his body on the line. And he realizes that his power is really his ability to draw national attention, to draw the media and to force these, these moral conflicts and to try to illustrate to the world that there's a battle going on here between right and wrong and that the, the, the protesters are on the side of justice. And, and that's where he can be that lightning rod, but it's not easy. And he's never really comfortable in that position. And as we started this conversation, why do you think that people use him as the soft protester in juxtaposition to Malcolm X and, you know, the Black Panthers and da-da-da? He becomes the like, you know, kumbaya guy. Why do you think that is? Well, in part, it's because he seems conservative, right? He dresses conservatively. He's a church leader. He's a religious man. He's calling for nonviolence. And he's meeting with the president, right? He's got the president's phone number. Um, so he wants to affect change through the proper channels. And he's not calling for a revolution. He's not calling, as Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam is calling for black separatism. He's not saying he wants to overthrow American society. He's saying he wants to join it. He just wants to be treated like an equal. So that, to some people, is perceived as, as conservative. Um, you know, I would say that it's a brand of radicalness, that um, it's in some ways more radical because he's, uh, he's, a, he's pushing for real change. He's not just, you know, flapping his gums. You know, I had heard that the FBI recorded the calls, but it wasn't until reading this book. I'm like, whew, they recorded a lot. Of, I mean, I'm like, how do I know that on July 26th, he said this to Baron Rustin. I'm like, this is wild that we have all these conversations. But it, it was interesting to read um, Rustin being like, you know, don't get arrested. You know, don't get like sort of people pushing. In this conversation, Rustin says, or no, Rustin said, don't do that, Martin. No, sir, you have to be free to make a statement to the press. And what you like, it's interesting to, I feel like as somebody who is an activist, we don't always get to see the behind the scenes of how we, we know so little about how they made the decisions. We just know the decisions, right? Right. And King was being criticized on all sides. You know, uh, people came from all over the country to join him in Selma. And then he, he turned around and, and didn't cross the bridge the first time. And people called him a, you know, a chicken for that. And, he uh, had advisors like Bayard Rustin, who was one of the boldest and 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 fiercest uh, r radicals of our uh, of that era. Uh, and he's saying, "No, you can't go to jail. You've got to do this lawfully. You've got to do this legally." So King could never please everybody. But one of the things I love about King is that he's listening to everybody. You know, he, he easily could have 
separated himself from Stokely Carmichael, but he enjoyed listening to and arguing with, with Carmichael. He, he relished the opportunity to engage with people who did, who felt differently with him. That's why I think, you know, he and, and Malcolm, um, probably would have gotten along really well if they'd spent more time together because King was always looking to learn. Um, and he, and he didn't judge. I'm interested in, in the, the circle around King. How did your King research inform or maybe change or stretch your impression of people like Abernathy or Rustin or Young? You know, like what, did you come out being like, okay, this is what I thought. I thought Rustin, I came in thinking Rustin was probably gonna be like this. I left Rustin was like this, you know, like, I would love to know about the people around him. It was a circus around King. You know, he he would let anybody in, anybody who seemed to have something to offer, including people who were, you know, certifiably nuts, like like James Bevel. Um, that guy was, you know, even Andrew Young said he might have been clinically insane. Um, but, and, and King wanted all their ideas and he recognized that they all had something to, to some way to serve and that you know Andrew Young for example was was kind of the um th- the voice of reason and King would use him to try to calm down the people who were more extreme. So King had a very unusual approach to leadership in that way. He really didn't like making decisions. He liked to let everybody hash it out and then see where the consensus would fall and and then take it that way. And that's often why so many different things were tried. If you look at Birmingham for example, um you know while King's in jail um, Andrew Young is kind of in the lead, but it's um, others who are really pushing the marches forward and, and pushing them more aggressively. It's it's James Orange who's recruiting students. You know, they run out of people to march in in Birmingham, and they start going after high school students, which some people say is you know even Malcolm X criticized that, saying you know we don't put our children's lives on the line. Um, and all this stuff is happening because King has this very loose style of leadership that he's willing to let others. He's kind of like you know Duke Ellington, I think. You know, he 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 runs a he, he runs. He's definitely in charge, but he's counting on the talents of the people around him to 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 make their voices heard. And can you talk about Rustin? I am selfishly interested in Rustin. Did you did you did you did you leave thinking what you came in with with Rustin? No, I came away, you know, loving Rustin even more. Although I was a little frustrated at how conservative he became toward the end, and he takes a job. Um, working for the for the labor unions and, and I think he becomes even more conservative at that point and maybe it's just a factor of age because uh, I'm certainly not questioning Rustin's uh, bravery um, he's a fab, fantastic figure and I think he's one of King's most important teachers you know he gets down to Montgomery before just about anybody else and offers his services and King to his credit I mean everybody knows that he's gay and that he's got a communist background and that he's gonna be bad publicity and King is warned to keep his distance, and Rustin actually volunteers to go to, go to Birmingham and work from there, just so he'll be out of sight. Maybe people won't notice him as much. Um, but you know, King really sees in, sees Rustin as an important teacher, and it's Rustin who says, you know, if you're going to make uh, this nonviolent tactic stick, you might want to you know lose the gun in your house and, and lose your armed guards. And, and King really begins to see the value in um, in Gandhiism and in pacifism in general. And and Rustin beca- Rustin is is also you know a really skilled organizer, something King needs desperately. And you know Rustin gets you know ninety percent of the credit for the March on Washington. Maybe King gets ten for his for his speech, uh, but it's Rustin who pulls that off. And and that's you know in some ways the crowning moment of King's career. So. Um, Rustin's a is a great advisor, and he clearly you know cares deeply, uh, even when he's urging King to 
scale back. You may, may you could argue that, that Rustin was right. You know, Rustin said, don't go to Chicago. Rustin said, don't stick your neck out on the Vietnam War. Stick to the South. Just focus on voting rights. Just get more people registered to vote in the South. And you can tilt the balance of power. You can change what happens in Congress. You can change presidential elections. You know, it didn't fit with King's worldview, but strategically, just in terms of you know your best play for power, Rustin might have been right in that regard. The first is I'd never seen that quote where King says, I felt the pressure to deliver the I have a dream speech every time. And I love that because it is, it's so true for so many people. Like you do something cool and then that becomes the bar and you're like, well, that was, uh, that was God, you know, that wasn't even me. Um, how did you stumble across that? Or did I just not read it and it had already been out for a million years? You know, I don't remember uh, whether it had been widely used before. Um, and if I remember correctly, that quote was from Andrew Young. It wasn't from King, but Andrew Young was yes, saying that it was Andrew Young. He yes, saw yes. that his friend felt this consuming pressure. And you know, King spoke. He must, he gave hundreds of speeches a year. He was on the road constantly. Sometimes he'd do three a day. So imagine that kind of pressure that every time somebody's coming out to hear. It's like Joe DiMaggio used to say. Every time he would take the field, um, he he. he reminded himself that somebody was seeing him play for the first time. Well, everybody coming to hear Martin Luther King speak must have felt like they were, they, they were, they had high standards and, and King delivered. King loved speaking in public. I think that was where he was most ha- comfortable, maybe where he was most happy because, um, he, you can see it. You can see when he gets taken away, you can hear it in his voice that he gets, becomes transformed, that he becomes something larger than himself when he's speaking. And, and he loves that connection he can make. And that's something he was doing all his life. Like as a child, he used to practice, you know, giving sermons in front of the mirror. So you could see that he would find this a very comforting place to be standing on the lectern or in the pulpit. And the last thing I'll say was, um, I love this section on the Nobel Prize and and sort of the the burden and responsibility of the prize. Um, how do you contextualize what the prize did for his ability to do this work well. You know, I hadn't thought about it this way before, but if you think about the way King is raised, he's everybody's telling him that he's a second-class citizen and he and his, his parents are telling him he's not, and he's fighting to prove that he's not. And here comes the Nobel Prize Committee giving him one of the greatest honors in the world. And you can only imagine how that felt for his parents, for his sharecropper father going to to Oslo, Norway, and seeing their son get this prize. But King felt like it was not just an honor, but a responsibility. And let's give a shout out to Coretta because she was the first to say it. She said, this prize means that we have to take on bigger jobs. We have to look at world issues now. We have to look at hunger. We have to look at poverty. Um, Because this is a peace prize, and peace is not just an issue in America. And, And Coretta was always pushing her husband to think big, and she is, um, uh, you know, her voice is, is not fully um, heard even today. We need to appreciate her contributions. Uh, but that Nobel Peace Prize uh, really does turn a corner for King and for Coretta, for Martin and Coretta, because they both begin to speak out more on the Vietnam War and on issues of hunger and poverty. And, you know, King at the end of his life is planning this, this poor people's campaign that really, you know, ties into everything he said in the moments after the winning the Nobel Prize, that it's not just about race, it's about creating this bigger, broader, you know, beloved community of people of, of all races and all um, ethnicities, and eliminating hunger, eliminating the sense of materialism, fighting back against militarism, you know, 
he he just kept getting bigger and bolder in his ambitions, which is you know one of the things I love most about him. Boom. The two questions we ask everybody. The first is, what do you say to people who whose hope has been challenged in moments like this? People who feel like they, they did all the things. They voted, emailed, protested, read your book, read my book, sent the email, testified, and the world hasn't changed in the way they wanted it to. What do you say to those people? I would say to them, listen to the, the, to the final words of Martin Luther King. You know, he said that he felt like America was going to hell, that his dream of that he talked about at the March on Washington had died, that it had turned into a nightmare. And yet he had not lost hope and that he would never lose hope because God created man and, and women in the image of God. And we have to live up to that. And you can't lose hope that you, if, if, you're, if you're trying to live up to that image. And I think that um, that reminder that, that we must never lose hope is one that I, I carry with me on the tough days. And what's a piece of advice that you've gotten that stuck with you over the years? Huh. Piece of advice that I've gotten that stuck with me through the years. Um, I was a terrible baseball player, but like little league was everything to me. That was all, all I lived for. And I used to just try to bunt to get my way on base because I was so bad. And the coach said, no, there's no, no bunting for you. You know, if you're not going to swing hard, if you're not going to try, then, then don't play. So I, I like to think that I'm, I'm swinging for the fences, even if I'm, if I'm not reaching them, I'm at least taking my best swing. Come on, coach. He there said, go, no coach. bunting for you. <laughs> no Come bunting. on, coach. I love that. <laughs> How do people stay in touch with you? Where do they go to make sure that they're up to date on everything you're doing? Oh, my website, jonathanike.com. And I'm just getting ready to go out on the road with this book. So please come and see me and say hello. Boom. We consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Oh, that's all. so nice. I really enjoyed this. This was a great conversation. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out and make sure you rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Evan Sutton. Executive produced by me. And special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles E. Johnson.